This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Today's episode is sponsored by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, and Praxis, discoverpraxis.com. Who should go to FEE? Who should check out FEE? Well, anyone who likes ideas should go to FEE.org because there's all kinds of articles, uh, a few of them penned by yours truly from time to time, articles, resources, books, but the real, real life-changing component are the in-person events. And if you're between the ages of 14 and 26, you're curious about the world, you're curious to, to get out and engage with other people who like ideas and want to learn, and you wonder what economics is all about, you want to go beyond just boring charts and graphs and really understand how economic thinking can make you a better entrepreneur, a better creative person, a better person in general, someone who understands and can navigate the world more effectively. Check out fee.org slash seminars, fill out an application, let them know you heard about it here on the podcast. Who should check out Praxis? Again, if you're between the ages of 18 and 25 and you want to get out of the classroom and get into the real world, Praxis gives you the opportunity to spend a year working with entrepreneurs, helping them build their businesses, learning how to be an entrepreneur by working with them in the real world. We destroy the separation between education and work, the real world and the classroom. It's all bullcrap engage the world. You're working. You're also doing a bunch of self-guided. You have coaches and and advisors that are working with you, but they're self-created. You're creating your own goals, challenges, monthly personal development projects. You're building a website, creating an online brand. It is the fastest way to go from where you are now to where you want to be, the kind of life you want to live. Our goal is to help you live free, to help you become fully alive. And we want to give you the skills confidence, experience, knowledge, and network to do that in just one year for a net cost of zero. What you earn during the program covers what you pay. Discoverpraxis.com. Check it out. What is that horrible, horrible screeching noise? I'll tell you what it is. It's another episode of Ask Isaac. Why did I start with that? Because our first question today is kind of a question, kind of a grumpy, angry statement submitted by Anonymous quite courageously. Uh, It is... I can't stand the new intro music. Can you please return to the old music or something that doesn't grate on the ears? Well, Anonymous, uh, I'm sorry that you can't stand the music. It is never my intention to unnecessarily displease someone, make them unhappy or great on their ears. So I like the new intro music. Uh, I like the old intro music. A lot of people didn't like that one. Um, a lot of people laughed at it and told me it was weird and it didn't fit. I like the new intro music even better. Some people don't like that one. Uh, Apparently Anonymous doesn't like it. Um, So here's my solution, because you can't make everybody happy with the things that you create, right? If you're going to write a little article or blog post and you're like, okay, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. I don't want anyone's ears or eyes to bleed. Um, 
I'll put in a caveat for everything, an exception. I'll, I'll, I'll focus group test absolutely everything. What do you guys think? Do you like this? How can I, you'll end up bland and dull and boring as imaginable. It's like median voter theorem, right? By the final election, why are all the candidates the same? Because they're all just focus grouping everything and it just becomes whoever can offend the fewest people. Um, so we can't go that route. That's not acceptable. Uh, we're not going to change the intro music that I like very much. And some other people do as well. Um, because unfortunately anonymous, I, I, I wish that you did like it and it didn't grate on your ears, but my solution is, uh, because it's all relative, right? Maybe you only think this intro music's bad because you have it to compare to the older intro music, which you preferred. Maybe if it was only ever this one compared to nothing, you would like it. Or that music might not grate on your ears if it immediately was followed by a sound that's much, much worse. So maybe after the intro music on every episode, I'll just like start to show off with something like that. And, uh, and then you'll be like, oh my gosh, give me that intro music back again. So hopefully everyone's happy with that answer. Our next question. Um, Thomas Bogle is a good guy. Tom is a teacher and an entrepreneur that I happen to know. Hello, Tom. Thanks for the question. Here we go. Hypothetical scenario. You have a fantastic idea or 12, but you don't have the technical skills to turn that into a, that idea into a reality yourself, nor do you have the capital to hire people to build it for you. First, how do you go about getting the right people to buy into your idea? Second, how would you proceed in building your idea? Even a wireframe model. Um, wireframe model makes me think it must be a software, website, digital type idea. Um, interestingly enough, coming up uh, probably mid to late February, we're going to be doing a four-part series on a beginner's guide to startups. And one of the questions we'll be exploring in that series is uh, how to start a business, when to start a business, and if you know you want to be an entrepreneur, but you don't necessarily have an idea, how do you pick an idea to get it off the ground? So we'll cover some of this stuff in more detail. But for now... I'll tell you this, Tom, um, it makes me a little nervous and it could just be the way it's worded to hear, Hey, you don't have the, the technical skills to turn it into reality yourself, nor do you have the capital. How do you go about getting the right people to buy into it? Um, now I could be reading this wrong, but it almost sounds to me like, Hey, what if you don't fully buy into this yourself? Like it's a great idea. And like, if someone could build it and you could sort of just guide them a little bit, it'd be awesome. But I can't find somebody to do that for me. Um, I don't know how much, how often that works. Now, maybe that's not what you mean, but I know for me, I've had plenty, like I've got a, a list at any given time of like 10, 20 ideas for a website or an app, right? Who doesn't have an idea for an app? Um, I, I once saw a tweet that said something like someone saying, Hey, I've got an idea for an app, but I don't have any coding skills is like someone saying, Hey, I've got an idea for a novel, uh, but I don't know how to write. Um, now I don't think it's quite the same. I think that analogy is interesting and it, and it's revealing because I'm one of those people who's like, Oh man, I just need a coder. I got all this great stuff. Um, and the, the, the implication there is that you can't separate the coding skills from having an idea about something that needs to be coded. Now, I actually think that that's not entirely true. Um, and maybe even with writing of novels, it's not entirely true. But regardless, interesting point. Um, but so I've got all these ideas and it's like, 
okay, man, it'd be great if I had somebody that could build this, you know, I'd, I'd give them 80% equity or more if they just built it and I give them the idea and give some thoughts and guidance. And then we just like launch it. It's not that capital intensive and see what happens. If it works, awesome. If not, no big deal. If, you know, assuming that their time, that they've got the time to, to try something like this, um, wouldn't that be great? But I, I think, I think it's easy to overestimate how easy it is. I think it's really hard to make anything succeed that you aren't really, really a part of and really, really care about. Just like a little side business, a little like cool website that will bring you passive income. Um, I think that's almost impossible. It's very, very hard. I don't want to say impossible, but very hard. Um, If it's not your full focus, what you want to pour yourself into 100% then you're going to have a really hard time making it work. So if you're just like, I want to find some technical people that can build it and some other people that can run it and some people that will give me the money to get it going and then we'll just like let it go. Um, Very, very tough. Now, if what you mean is I'm ready to go at it right now, um, I need people to work with me. But if, if you're really, really passionate about that vision and you know you believe in it, then that's the number one trait you're going to have to have. If you're not a technical founder, you're going to have to be a visionary founder, someone who can rally people around a vision and make them say, oh my gosh, I want to work with this guy. One of our business partners at Praxis is a company called Aceable. And the founder of that company was telling us his story at the opening seminar. And he's very much this way. He's not a technical guy, but he's had several ideas, but he has such a powerful vision and ability to sell it. Like when you're in the room with him, and he's talking about his story and whatever, you feel like if he right there on the spot said, hey, why don't you come work with me? Like you would just immediately say, yes, you wouldn't even ask like, how much am I getting paid? What am I doing? What is this? He's just one of those guys. Like you want to, he, he creates a vision and you want to follow him. You want to go where it goes. I think that quality that, that you, you know, I think you kind of have it naturally, but you can also cultivate it. It's going to be necessary if you're going to get people with the skills. If you can't do it yourself, um, build your product yourself, you're going to have to get them um, in that way. And, and I asked him, how did you find programmers? He's like, man, I just went to meetup groups all the time of all these developers, programmers, whatever. And, um, you know, it was not easy, but I just talked to as many as I possibly could to try to see if I could find somebody who was game, who was interested in it. And even there, he got burned a couple times with his early, um, companies and, and getting, you know, co-founders that weren't really a great fit. Um, so I think you've got to, you've got to live and breathe it. Um, and you've got to really have that, compelling vision that you believe to get other people to come along with it. Now, here's another option. If you've got all these ideas, but none of them are like, like I call it the willing to fail test. If you're not willing to fail on some of them, like, oh, this business sounds really interesting. If I knew that it would work, I would go full time in it. But if I'm not sure if it's going to work, it's not really worth it, right? That's not a business you're willing to fail in pursuit of. But if you have one that you're so passionate about, you need to see if it works and you're willing to fail in the, in the effort. Like I would rather try this and fail than never try it at all. That's one to go go all the way. But it, but if you have some you're not willing to fail on, they're just interesting ideas, um, give them away. Just give them away. Ideas are infinite. And I actually think becoming an ideas person, James Altucher has this concept of becoming an idea machine. It's something you can cultivate. And the more you do it, the more you are able to do it. And so if you just write down and list your ideas all the time and then just give them away, like blog about them, share them with people. Hey, here's this idea. Maybe it's silly. Maybe someone wants to run with it. Here you go. And then just just keep giving them away and see what happens. Let somebody do something with it or not. But if you know you're not going to have the ability, you're not going to be able or willing or capable or whatever of doing it, and it's not something you're willing to pour everything into, just give it away. I mean, I've got so many little 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 business ideas. They're my little babies, right? Like Praxis is my thing. So I'm not, I don't have the ability or interest to do anything else. 
But I have these ideas that come. It's like, oh, that'd be cool. Oh, that'd be cool. And there's this tendency to like hold on to protect it. Oh, I don't want to tell anybody. That's my idea. Maybe I'll do that sometime. I'm not going to do that. Like Praxis is what I'm investing myself in. And it, and it's, it would be stupid for me to try to do all these other things that are, that are not my specialty. So why don't I just give them away and m- nothing will happen to most of them because most of them are probably bad ideas anyway, but maybe it will. Uh, in fact, I have a really interesting story on this. I, I did a, a little post on Medium one day. I had this idea for what uh, Voxer, this app that I use all the time on my phone, like, oh man, if Voxer tweaked their model just a little bit, this would be the most amazing technology ever, blah, blah, blah. And so I just wrote this post about it and shared it on Medium. Like Voxer could do something world changing. Um, and like, if I wasn't doing anything else and I had a technical background, like I would try to build it. I thought, I thought it was that cool, but I'm not going to do that. I'm doing other stuff, whatever. It's just not my thing. So I was like, what the heck? I'll just share this with the world. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen with it. And if I share it with the world, nothing's probably going to happen anyway, but it's kind of fun. Uh, I got like three different CEOs of tech companies emailing me being like, hey, the interesting idea. Uh, we're doing something kind of like this. And one of them was the vice president of Voxer was like, hey, uh, can we chat on the phone? I want to ask you a little more about this idea. And so we talked for like a half hour on the phone with the, the like VP of Voxer, this text you know, company. So cool. What a fun experience. Like I got something awesome out of just giving that idea away. And I, I haven't seen anybody implement it yet. Uh, if they do, awesome. Uh, I don't care if I get credit. I'm sure I wasn't the first one to think of it. Um, if they don't, I haven't lost anything anyway. So if you're not going to put everything behind it and you know you're not going to do it or can't, just give it away. But if you are, then you've got to live and breathe that vision so much to where like people want to rally around you. And that's where you draw on that social capital you've built all through your life of all the people you've helped um, with nothing and and no expectations in return, the goodwill that you've built, you just start cashing it in. Hey man, this is it. This is my thing. This is where it's worth it to cash in all those chips and ask for favors from people. Uh, If you know that that's the opportunity you're sitting on, then go for it. Not easy though. Definitely not easy. Okay. Andy Heinen. You guys talk about information without gatekeepers, but I feel gatekeepers want to control that very information. Um, They want to guide and direct your actions. Um, There's a video that Andy shared that talks about uh, somewhere in China, people getting like social points for behaving in certain ways. Uh, You also hear about, you know, algorithms and things on Facebook or Google that try to like feed you information that based on your behavior and whatever, you can sort of get trapped in a, in a rut of not being exposed to new information. Um, this kind of reminds me of the concept of nudge, where you sort of frame people's decisions in certain ways and frame the incentives so that even though they are free to get any information or choose anything, it's very unlikely they'll do anything than the choices you want them to by kind of framing those choices for them. Uh, so Andy says, what are your feelings about this? I mean, look, at the end of the day, we can sit around and get worried and scared and paranoid and like, oh my gosh, they're trying to control our choices. They're controlling the stuff that I see online. Oh, they're trying to incentivize me to click on this stuff and, and be distracted from what's really going on in the world and, and you know only read about the Kardashians. And oh Okay, I'm sure there's a lot of people with a lot of incentive to do that. But you still get to choose at the end of the day. And even this video, Andy, that you shared with me, like somebody made that and put it online. You found it somehow. Um, did they not want you to find it, whoever they are? 
right? I mean, I always love when you see the headlines that are like, you know, the information they don't want you to see. And I'm like, that's weird because I've seen that article like 30,000 times on every website I've clicked on in the last three days, right? Like whoever they are, they're not doing a very good job, right? Um, This is not to say that censorship and suppression of information and misinformation and all kinds of things like that don't exist. They absolutely do. And certainly in extreme cases, like in, you know, former Soviet countries or in, in, in something really extreme like North Korea, there is massive suppression of information, um, you know, backed by violence and coercion. And again, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you're just born and like every bit of information is just there accessible to you if you want it. But I think on some fundamental level, you have free will, whether you acknowledge it or not. And even if that free will only means I get to choose obedience or death, just acknowledging that you do in fact have that choice. And even if you choose obedience, you can say, I am choosing this because I value my life. I don't like that I'm faced with this choice. I don't like the person imposing it on me. Um, I am acknowledging the reality of the situation and I am choosing this because I value life more than, you know, um, more than whatever, be, you know, defying this, this rule. That alone is so empowering and you start to see the small choices you have all around you. And, in, and if you live in a country like the United States, it's not nearly that extreme. It's, it's very rarely, uh, you know, death, you know, don't read this book unless you want to die. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? In terms of information, um, it's all pretty widely accessible. And I think instead of lamenting the ways that people are attempting to manipulate us, we should just be excited and thrilled and, and seize on the fact that we do get to choose um, what we explore, where our interest and curiosity takes us and what kind of information we imbibe. All right, last question. Well, it's really the last questioner. It's a few questions. Matt Needham asks, first, what book should I read this weekend? Yes, me. I'm glad, Matt, that you specified it was in fact you asking the question. well, I'll give you one off the top of my head. I'm not saying like, oh, this is my favorite book. Oh, this is the best book ever. In fact, I'm only about, according to my Kindle, let me check right now what what my, on my lovely Kindle Paperwhite, which I'm not being paid to endorse. Uh, I wish I was. Amazon, happy to take your money to endorse the Paperwhite. Okay, so I'm only 22% through the book. Um, I would normally not recommend a book that I'm only 22% through, but I'm loving this book. It's called The Last Safe Investment, and it's by Michael Ellsberg and somebody else. And Michael Ellsberg is well known for a book, uh, The Education of Millionaires, which I have not read. A lot of people have told me they love it and that it's very um, in line with a lot of the the ideas behind Praxis. Um, but The Last Safe Investment, and it's it's I hate investment books, money books. I'm not the type to read books like How to Get Rich, Where You Should Invest Your Money. Um, those don't usually appeal to me that much, but uh, I really like this book. It's more about happiness. If you, it's it's almost it's it's plugging in financial goals and success into a much broader ecosystem of your life as a whole. And it's really about something that I'm huge on and I, I talk about constantly, sort of self-knowledge, getting to know who you are. What are your preferences? What do you actually like? You know, everybody's supposed to like uh, wealth and uh, flexibility and all these different, but not everybody actually does value those as highly as they might think they do compared to other things. So figuring out those values, And it talks a lot about something that I'm also huge on, which is putting your investment, time, money, energy into things over which you have control, over which your effort and ability has an impact. 
So when you put all your money into the stock market or something, unless you have a unique skill or ability in stock trading or analyzing stocks, which very few people do, or if you put it in real estate, unless you have a really unique ability in that field, you're putting your money in something that you have no control of. And you have no ability, how good you are, your performance can't really affect uh, in, for most of us. So I would rather invest it in something myself, something that you know I can uniquely do. Uh, so it talks a lot about this. So it's called The Last Safe Investment. That would be the book that I would recommend right now. Again, I still have to read 78% of it. Um, so hopefully it doesn't flip on me and become a horrible book, but it's, it's, it's been really, really good so far. Uh, okay. How has moving to Charleston made your life better? You know, there are so many ways that it has, so many ways. Um, and not, not just because like, oh, Charleston is objectively this wonderful place to live. Because Charleston is a great place for my wife and I to live. Given our preferences and our interests, it really fits who we are, the stage at life we're at, the things that we want really, really well. And it was almost like this realization, this this epiphany that we don't have to wait for permission. Like we can give ourselves permission to live in a place that has all the features we want. You don't have to wait for vacation to be in a place that's wonderful and beautiful and that you love. Oh, isn't this weather nice? I wish we had this back home. Then pick a place that has weather that you want every day. Oh man, the beach is wonderful. Ah, sad vacations coming to an end. Then move to a place that has a beach right there. They're all over. There's all kinds of ways you can make this work. People think that they can't, but if you if you make that a must and say, look, I have to live in a place that I like, that I'm happy with, there is almost always a way to make that work. You don't need to wait for vacation. You don't need to wait for permission. So anyway, almost every day, and I'm conscious of it every, we've been here almost five years, and I'm literally tangibly conscious of my high happiness level every day with where we live. What are the things I like most? The really, really small things. So for example, there are things you don't realize until you leave a place that you're not in love with. You can tolerate, humans can tolerate a lot. You can be living in some attic, whatever, and not really notice it. Like I'm like that with offices. I mean, my office can be a broom closet. I don't care. But then when I move to one that's nice and has like a nice, fresh, you know, flow to it, I'm like, wow, I'm just so much happier. What, what happened? It's because I don't always realize it until after, but the little things. So when we lived in DC, for example, we didn't like it then, but now that we've moved away, I'm like, how did we even stomach it? Uh, or when we lived in Lansing, Michigan, like how did we even handle it? Because I didn't know what I was missing. When you drive to get groceries, everything you drive past is ugly and dirty and cramped and crowded and worn down and slow. When you get there, the parking lot is ugly and dirty and cramped. When you go in to Target, if your kids have to go to the bathroom, the bathroom is ugly and dirty and the doors are torn off and it's locked and it's busy and it's disgusting. Things cost a little more, like all the little small parts of the experience when you drive home, the things that you drive past are ugly and gross. The tiniest things, there's this little stretch of road that I drive on here in Charleston to get from any, pretty much anywhere I'm going to my house from my little neighborhood complex. Just this little road and it goes over a marsh on both sides. And there's sort of like woods and trees and houses. And then there's just a little break where there's this little area of marsh and a creek and a couple docks and a boat and the tide will be high or low. I don't think about it most of the time. That tiny little interval, which is just like in the background of my day-to-day life, it's not a part of it. It's not like I'm hiking or swimming in that creek. Like, oh, this creek is so great. We use it all the time. I don't do anything with it. I just drive by it. But 
that background of my day-to-day activities is beautiful and peaceful. And what that does to set the stage for your happiness is unbelievable. You all of a sudden realize it's like, you know, it's like if you sat down at a desk every day and you had like a big, giant, hideous thing like protruding from the wall, blocking half your vision all day long and you just worked with it. You'd be like totally, you know, wouldn't even notice it because it always been there. And then all of a sudden it's removed and there's like a window with a pretty view out on a meadow. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm just better. My quality of life is so much better. It's like that. You don't notice the spaces around you, the environment in which you dwell. I think it has a huge impact. And I'm, and I'm somebody who's I can tolerate a lot, but it has a huge impact. The, the, the number of days of sunshine, for example, I always like, why am I grumpy lately? If it's been like four or five days without a lot of sun, I don't know. I don't know. Notice why, but I just start to be like less happy. So these really small things. When we go to the grocery store here, the parking lot is beautiful. There's little, you know, there's little raised curbed areas with like palm trees and it's just, it's nice. Things are just nice and pretty and peaceful. Like you drive on a normal average road with nothing fancy about it. And you've got these huge live oaks sweeping over it with Spanish moss hanging down. That's just normal. That's just in the background of day-to-day life. And that kind of thing, that setting is just something that it's so it's never like in your face it's not like wow the thing i love about it is the restaurants are amazing because it's this very tangible experience those things are great but it's these little small things that you don't even notice when you're experiencing them um unless you've been someplace much worse like the smell of the air you know it's got like sort of a briny nice like rich earthy smell to it man it's awesome it's awesome the fact that i can look at pine trees in my backyard when i look out my window i see trees just little things those things have been amazing. Um, so yes, the the daily activities uh, and, and the surroundings there. Okay, how has moving to Charleston made your life worse? This is the last question. Honestly, I can't really think of any ways. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I suppose if I moved somewhere even better, some place that I haven't discovered that is an even better fit for us, I could be like, wow, I didn't realize that there were things about Charleston that I really didn't like that were really making my life worse. I know there are things I don't like, but I don't feel like they're sort of making my life worse. Um, Travel is harder. I'll say that like when I go to leave. uh, What I mean by that is actually the airport is much easier because it's a small airport. So it's really quick to get in and out of um, a little costlier to fly out of Charleston, definitely than a, a bigger city. But, um, but what I mean by travel is harder is like, I don't want to leave. I'm not as motivated when we lived in DC. I loved it when I had work trips. Cause I got me out of DC for a couple of days. I mean, I missed my family, but it was really fun to, to get out and see something. Cause I didn't really like being in our townhouse and like, you know, the little mud pit that was our backyard supposedly. <laughs> um, and the traffic and all that, but here I never want to leave. And then every time I land and I get out of the airport and I smell the air and I see the palm trees, I just like, ah, I'm like, why do I, I never want to leave again? <laughs> why do I leave this place? Um, so I don't like, uh, you know, when I come home, I'm like, nah, I don't want to leave again. Um, you know, I guess, I guess one thing that we, it could have made our life worse was when we were deciding where to move. We could have, we're a little bit impetuous and fast to act. And I think that plays in our favor oftentimes, including in this case, we could have, cause we could have moved anywhere. So we could have just stressed and like analyzed where is the perfect place that meets all of our needs. It has all the right mix of like cost of living, access to uh, the beach, good weather, a place where the pace of life is good for raising our kids, where, you know, we've got a place where we can build a social network, an environment for business, well, all these different things. You could agonize forever. 
about picking the perfect place. And I suppose that could, that could stress, stress you out. Um, but we just sort of came here and we're like, this is awesome. Why not? Let's just do this. No need to fuss. <laughs> this is a great place. Let's try it. We've never lived in a place that we love so much. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't really think of ways that it's, that it's made, made my life worse. Uh, thank you everyone for the questions. As always, I love doing these. I love getting questions. Uh, anonymous, I'm sorry that you don't like the music that's about to play as we wrap up the show here. Um, but you know, once again, it's better than, at least I hope it is, uh, submit questions to Isaac Morehouse slash ask dash Isaac.com anytime and have a great day.